It's been a tumultuous start to 2022. Inflation, rising rates, the war in Ukraine, and a correction in stocks, a bear market in high multiple stocks we came to love during the pandemic, have contributed to a climate of uncertainty. That said, where investing is concerned, it's important to remember that there are both new opportunities that have arisen as a result, and to remember there are also a number of enduring long-term thematic opportunities that have been made more, in some cases, more opportunistic at this time. Here to talk about it is our dear friend, Mark Noble, Executive Vice President and Head of ETF Strategy at Horizons ETFs. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on again and great to catch up with you. Yeah, always a pleasure to be chatting here. Yeah, absolutely. So much to talk about. That said, um, Mark, let's start with some of the dominant events and trends shaping markets. What's your take on inflation and the correction? Well, I think it was inevitable, to be honest. I mean, it's, and it wasn't just because of the, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, which I think is something that investors are quite um, realizing the gravity of. <laughs> we'll hit that in a minute. But, you know, what we saw in 2021, 2022 was what I would say the biggest influx of retail investors in terms of just seismic shift in the financial services industry since the mid-1990s, since the boomers kind of entered their full phase accumulation years. And so there is a big like secular demographic shift occurring where we're likely going to see the baby boomers, um, which are the primary demographic of investors in North America, overtaken by the combined wealth of uh, Generation X and millennials and to a lesser degree, Gen Z, uh, which means it changes the dynamics of what's happening with investing. And I think, you know, that in itself has been the biggest part of disruption that we've seen across the uh, entire investment landscape, because it's really changed the dynamics of what's being purchased. So we've had an incredible number of new investors come on in 2020 and 2021, uh, roughly 25 million in the United States, 3 million in Canada. Uh, so you're looking at almost like 10% of the population coming on somewhere between 50 to 20% of all new assets were created during that period from retail investors. And so this was like adding massive kerosene to the financial markets. And then you have a culminated fed policy, which allowed these people to get involved with the asset price increase. And it's just put everything warp speed. So I would say that, you know, what we saw happen with investors between 1994 and 1999 we kind of saw happen in an 18 month period during the pandemic. And the challenge was when we come into 2022 is where are we going to get net new money? Where am I going to add another 25 million investors in North America? And the answer is I'm not, uh, we're not as an industry, which meant that at a certain point, you're already going to see that kind of, uh, you know, fuel that's being added to that growth rally taken out because there's just nowhere to go. We see that in crypto even more to that degree. You know, crypto's gone from a market value of $100 billion in 2019 to well over a trillion dollars in 2021. Where are new investors coming from in these areas? So that was already the precipice of kind of a very fragile market condition. And I'm not even talking about the inflationary environment that we're seeing, which is from accommodated Fed policy and supply chain issues. But now you add on the fact that we're having massive global supply chain disruption because of COVID. 
we had this fragile market environment that was already uh, occurring from this kind of end of runway for retail investors. Now you're at the fact that we have to deal with massive global supply chain issues that are occurring from the deglobalization of the world, massive security concerns around, you know, an East Asian centric supply chain have created uh, a lot more concern around the fact that almost all of our technology is in some way, shape or form being manufactured in East Asia. And that's created a lot of issues in terms of both supply chain disruption because of factories in China being shut down because of shipping routes being acted, but also the fact that the United States now realizing with things like semiconductors, for example, that there's a big security need for here, right? It's like the energy crisis of the 1970s where we need these things in North America and we're going to have to onshore them into North America, which is also creating an inflationary environment as we look to move beyond just cheap manufacturing in the developed, developing world to the developed world. So you have that happening and then you have the war in Ukraine, which, you know, I don't think many people thought was going to occur. And I don't think, again, people understand the gravity of how serious this conflict is. It's the first major conflict uh, in Europe since the Second World War. And its implications are absolutely massive because it's effectively eliminating the primary source of agricultural and energy goods for Europe and completely decimating any growth in Europe, which is still a major economy. And how we're going to be able to replace what's being taken out from the Russia-led supply chain is anyone's guess. But this is just going to create for the next probably 12 to 18 months, huge disruptions in energy and huge disruptions in agricultural food prices, which are already piling on top of the fact that you've got all these inflationary concerns. So in my mind, I mean, the risk factors you know, outside of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, have never been as great as they are right now. Whether we kind of slug our way through it is, is, is anyone's guess, but you look at these fundamental factors and you can't be anything but concerned. Mark, now you, you bring up agriculture and the Ukraine. I don't think anybody here really was paying a lot of attention to exactly how much wheat Ukraine produces and how much of the food material they supply to other parts right. of the world. And how that's being disrupted right now, leading to massive shortages, and of course, we've we've seen uh, higher prices. Well, and not just Ukraine, but Russia as well. Like one of the things about before this uh, conflict is, if you let, read a lot of emerging analyst reports, there is usually actually like a very bullish case to own Russia uh, market cap because Russia, after its crisis in um, you know earlier part of the last decade uh, or in the end of last decade they really started to focus on some key industries. And one of them was agriculture. And they started to get a lot better at producing a lot of food and doing it very quickly and cheaply relative to the rest of Europe. Uh, we already know what they were doing on the natural gas side of things. And so you have an integrated supply chain where the rest of Europe is completely reliant on uh, Ukraine and Russia combined for food. Obviously, Ukraine's a massive breadbasket. It's like moving to Saskatchewan and uh, Alberta and Manitoba in terms of, you know, it's, it's, it's efficiency for creating that. But you have this massive disruption of these key needs for Europe. And the whole European supply chain was integrated based on this. And you have the fact that all during these years from 2014, the first, you know, uh, incursion in Crimea, where Russia has really reduced its 
debt to GDP ratio. Its balance sheet was looking great uh, because it's been so effective at being a net exporter of these crucial commodities. Um, so you're taking basically, you know, 20 years of very me mechanical and systematic supply chain development in Europe, and you're blowing it up in a matter of months. What do we do? And and this is why, you know, your inflation for food and energy in Europe, even if we can try to offset it through Canada or through other parts of the world, it, it's going to be something that hits crisis levels, I imagine, in the next few months as supply starts. To so we've got this this tragic and human drama unfolding in the war uh, with the war in Ukraine and the fallout from that. It has really sort of brought to bear uh, or highlighted that Europe and uh, right. it has really brought to bear Europe and NATO's vulnerabilities. It's definitely highlighted how vulnerable Europe is vis-a-vis -vis natural gas and its energy dependence. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you obviously have investors betting on commodities being, you know, the scarcity of commodities being being at best theme of 2022. And fundamentally, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's just the shortfall in already in an economic growth for, there's already this incredible economic growth that we were seeing coming out of COVID and demand coming back on. And now you just don't have enough supply to meet that demand. Um, you might though, you know, like something like crude oil, for example, you might end up seeing that surprise the downside because you could have OPEC plus getting more um, supply on board. Like, I mean, there's been very systematic supply destruction during the last half decade. Um, and some of that can come back on in the next year or so. You've seen incredible amount of supply destruction in the oil market, which could technically maybe cut back on. You could have the United States and the Permian and Bakken Basin start to bring um, inventory back online. So I think the crude oil story is probably, you know, playing out where you have, you could have it reach something insane, like $200 a barrel on Brent, it's potential. Um, but overall, you likely have supply in place to support, you know, elevated oil prices, but not like catastrophic oil prices. But it's the other commodities that are, that are deeply concerning. Um, when you look at what's actually risen the most in the last year uh, on the commodity side, uh, coal is up over 200%. Uh, basically, if Europe wants to warm itself, uh, they are going to have to burn a lot of coal. And so coal has gone through the roof uh, to the, and natural gas prices have gone exceedingly high to where the point where they're not even feasible to warm, like it to be used for heat in Europe. So you have to move to coal, uh, which creates all kinds of carbon emission issues. But beside the point, I mean, people need to have warm houses before they're worried about emissions. So you've seen coal just absolutely skyrocket as the price of natural gas has reached record highs due to the constraints. Or uh, lithium is another that's just taken off at a much higher rate over almost 300% year over year increase in lithium prices. And that's simply because right now, what happens if people see high oil prices, they're already looking at electric vehicles, electric vehicles before this recent crisis, were already on a trajectory to represent one of three car sales by 2030. That could be more now if people start to factor in what is the cost of combustible engines. And we've talked about this before, but people seem to think that like somehow you eliminate the need for commodities when you move to technology. You don't eliminate the need for commodities. You just change the commodities that you're, that you're using. So 
if I'm going to move from electric vehicles, very simply that I'm moving the global transportation dependency from oil and gas to lithium and cobalt and just changing the supply chain needs. And that's again, a very East Asian dominated uh, supply chain. Uh, in fact, the prices that you quote globally are in, uh, are in uh, Chinese renminbi. So, you, you know, you have this uh, new switch happening. Um, so all of this is actually just, you know, your fundamental push for the fact that the global supply chain is changing in terms of the needs for the commodities and commodities are taking off. And of course, this is all happening because there's also an incredible expansion of the monetary supply that's going to contract with rising interest rates. But generally speaking, all that kind of free money that was used to stimulus, it's now being completely armed away by the fact that the real price of goods is is, is, is rampantly out of control. And supply chain issues, even if they get fixed, you know, they'll take away some of that pressure, but probably not a lot of it, particularly as we start to reorient our economies around, you know, how, how can we manage these baseline important commodity needs in the face of crisis and in the face of a larger theme, which is really deglobalization. We could talk about that a little bit more, but the, the fact that we're basically unraveling 40 years of globalization and moving to very, very distinct economic blocks, one led by the United States and its NATO allies and one led by China. Mark, you mentioned you mentioned deglobalization. And speaking of deglobalization, um, it's I think it's really ironic to contemplate that globalization, that the globalization trend we saw over the last 20 years is exactly what's led to a right. lot of decisions that were made about energy. Uh, both globally, but most notably in Europe, and about energy dependence, uh, about supply chains, right? We pushed, uh, we pushed globalization so far that Correct. Europe became pretty docile about accepting Russia's generosity. And now the chickens have come home to roost, and that has exposed all the vulnerabilities of globalization. And under, under uh, the globalization, one, in one interesting example is Germany which decided, uh, you know, some time ago, let's, let's keep on buying our, all of our natural gas from Russia. They also decided they could close down half of their nuclear plants uh, exactly. during the last uh, decade. And, uh, and this is one of the big, this is one big unintended consequence of a bad cross of complacent globalization with ESG. And, and now the war on Ukraine um, appears to have at this point has led Europe to this point of being disastrously caught on the back foot. So that's a nice uh, segue for some of the thematic opportunities we're going to talk about in the context of inflation and looming shortages right. in the global economy. Exactly. And the mighty disruption of war in Ukraine has only accelerated the existing pressures. What are you seeing in terms of behavior of the market, such as uh, in reaction to such things, such such things as rising rates, that have impacted value stocks favorably versus growth stocks, and how has that changed the valuation dynamics for the higher multiple stocks? What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's one of the things that makes me scratch my head because over the last uh, five years, growth stocks have now become analogous with low interest rates. So you basically have this day to day, and it's day to days. Try this different because day to day, if interest rates are viewed going up, if the if the ten year of U.S. Treasury is rising, then I know 
pretty with a fair degree of certainty that the NASDAQ 100 is on the decline because people are just doing earnings revisions based on the earnings rates of the growth stocks. I think it's kind of silly to be honest, just because uh, I'm not really worried about the cash flow concerns of Google and Microsoft and Apple and these omnipresent tech companies that really are so omnipresent that they're in every facet of the economy at this point in time. So that is like a, a very kind of silly trade in my opinion, but it's real. It happens all the time. And so you're seeing a movement away from growth stocks. Now on the bottom tier of the technology, clearly rising interest rates are going to significantly impact, you know, high growth companies, low cash flow. It's like, that's just what's going to happen uh, because of the debt management of trying to, you know, run a business that's startup. So you do end up with that significant risk metric. The market is very much moving towards, and we see the ETF space, for example, massive inflows into low volatility. Um, and that's simply as a hedge against the fact that if we're not going to see growth market, then there needs to be, there's going to be a bigger focus on cash flow uh, as a way to navigate and really protect ourselves against a decline. We saw the yield curve invert last week uh, for the first time since for 2020, where the first time actually, where the two years now yielding on the 10 year. And historically, you go back 50 years, every time that happens, within two years, you are in some sort of major recessionary environment. So people are looking at these kind of metrics saying, you know, if interest rates rise to level beyond their 2018 levels, you've got all of these macro geopolitical issues occurring. You've got the, as I mentioned earlier, the end of the retail investment boom. It seems like all the pieces are in place for a significant slowdown, which means that investors have now completely reframed towards low volatility, but low volatility, uh, you know, as an ETF investor, you got to keep in mind, I, I'm not a, I'm not a big low volatility zealot because low volatility technically looks at stocks that don't move. They look at the underlying relative volatility of stocks during market crises, right? That hold their value. And so you have a huge overweight to certain sectors. Uh, you have a huge overweight to real estate, utilities, and consumer staples. Uh, problem with that is, is that some of those actually have a high degree of duration sensitivity, particularly uh, telcos and real estate, because if you have interest rates rise, their relative yields, especially for like REITs, for example, the relative yields and generation actually gets hurt. So again, it's like people aren't really looking what's under the hood. So we could say value and, and low vol is, is attracting a lot of assets right now, but is that as important as looking at what the actual fundamental cash flow of companies are? So I think, you know, I think we're going to see a real interesting dispersion in the marketplace this year, where we are where people are looking at what companies are actually able to generate revenue through a full market cycle and do it reliably. And what companies, to your point earlier about what companies have really just been relying on low interest rates to boost their operating revenue and which ones are actually going to see their operating revenue dramatically hurt by rising interest rates. And the answer is we don't know, but it has created a dispersion where for the last three years, everything went up because of this asset price expansion from monetary stimulus, now people actually have to be looking at fundamental balance sheets, which is going back to your value point, because different ships are going to navigate these waters very differently. So 
Mark, value stocks have enjoyed a nice resurgence the last uh, right. six months or so versus growth. What are your thoughts on this? Are we seeing a reversion to a mean, uh, to the mean, a mean that favors value stocks again? Yeah, I, I just, I just don't know. I think where you're, you're, I think where you're coming from, and as someone who rationally looks at the market, I honestly think that a lot of the recent torque that we've seen is coming from people that actually think that the Fed interest rate hikes are not going to be as uh, significant as anticipated because of a global economic slowdown forehead. So again, a lot of the money in the market and the ETFs are a perfect example of this is fast money. It's just tactical allocations into asset classes, getting that full exposure based on changes in market dynamics. I, I don't see a lot of discussion, to be honest, in terms of people really looking at, you know, the FANG stocks values relative to, you know, the top end of the Dow, like, like which are traditional value-based companies. It seems to be more of, for better or worse, I don't have an opinion on it, but it seems to be more of just Fed watching. It's a lot of what people are looking for is just when is the next recession coming and when, at what point in time do we hit the top on interest rates? Because all that's really driven our growth, it's not been fundamental economic growth. Um, like we had our, had our best kind of stock years ever during, you know, a period where at one point in time, 50% of the workforce wasn't going to work. Uh, <laughs> It's all been driven by this stimulus. So as a result, people just want to keep playing at and playing this game. So we're, we're really starting to see the separation of the wheat from the chaff. The, uh, the market is starting to look at the fundamentals of companies again. We're seeing a big comeback in dispersion. Um, stocks that are disappointing are seeing some, in some cases, some very big gaps down. Do you see a situation where investors are taking quality far more seriously than they did in the past 10 to 12 years? But, but, but the psychology, but the psychology of, but the psychology of investors, that's what's astounding to me is the psychology of investors in that scenario. It's not about how good does Microsoft's balance sheet in that scenario. It's if there's going to be four hikes instead of seven, I'm going to buy the NASDAQ. So it, 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 it it's, it's incredulous to me, yeah. The, the probabilities of the number right. and nature of rate hikes has been a really hot topic uh, this last quarter. Right. But the interesting thing yeah. is that investors don't realize that the market looks at these things from a relative standpoint. Uh, seven rate hikes is right. worse than five rate hikes, and three rate hikes is better than five. In the end, right. nothing, is, nothing is about good or bad anymore, but rather better or worse than previously thought. Uh, and maybe that's always been true. Um, it's, it's all relative distinctions, right? There, there are, um, so Mark, there are some long-term durable investment themes that have made even, that have been made even more opportunistic and attractively valued by the correction in stock prices we've seen in the beginning, since the beginning of 2022. What are some of the key long-term thematic plays that you're paying attention to? I mean, in particular, uh, the ones that you think are the most opportunistic. Sure. So for me, it's, it's when I look at thematics, I look at thematics purely from the upstream value of it. So, you know, I look at oil and gas the same way that I look at semiconductors. What's your supply and demand for these? So when I'm talking about the thematics that are really uh, in favor, 
it's thematics that are going to work for an inflationary uh, environment, which we likely are in for you know, some time, even if we have a recessionary environment occurring. Uh, and so the big ones right out of the gate are actually alternative energies. And I think you have two things happening. As you've got a global energy crisis occurring, which it, um, it means that people are going to actually warp speed investment into alternative energy. But alternative energy does not mean it's devoid of the fundamentals of being a commodity. As I highlighted earlier, it's just changing those commodities. So the two, you know, I think biggest winners from this are not natural gas and not coal and oil. It's actually going to be an entry point for uranium um, and lithium's already up 30%. Lithium miner stocks that are get through ETF HLIT uh, are already up substantially this year. Um, and that's because people are recognizing that you've got a commodity, so it still follows the baseline need for commodities, right? Input costs go up, which means that the price of the commodity goes up. So therefore, you own the commodity as an inflationary hedge, so you have that happening. And we're seeing that with cop and other things as well. Uh, but you've also got a move towards this. I honestly think that this energy crisis is going to actually work to be more development into alternative energy because it's going to be a lot more profitable to do so. And so the big move is, of course, electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, whether it's a hybrid, uh, electric vehicles or full-on electric vehicles, most data suggests fairly, I think fairly accurately, that three to four cars on the road purchased by 2030 will have some sort of lithium battery to it, which means that if you own lithium or the mining stocks that produce lithium, you don't really care if, you know, Tesla ends up being the dominant electric vehicle manufacturer, if GM and Ford start to really ramp up their, you know, production of those vehicles, seems everyone's offering electric alternative these days, they all need that same input cost, just the way that, you know, what drove oil and gas prices was the automobile manufacturing of the 1940s to now. So that is the big opportunity, I think, for something like lithium, which is still not pricing in what would be effectively a three to 400% increase in usage by it. So there's that. The other one is uranium. And uranium is really because, again, you want to talk about energy independence. Well, uranium does something really interesting in that it creates baseload energy. So what you could create, if you have a uranium-based energy system, and unfortunately we have this in Ontario, is you can have a baseload energy production that stays at a certain level. And then you could augment that with, you know, solar or, you know, coal in the case of Europe, obviously trying to move away from that for the carbon reasons um, or other types of energy, but it's very efficient, powerful usage, extremely expensive to build up the infrastructure 10 to 15 years to do so. But major powers, and notably China, recognizes that in order to have energy independence, they are betting big on uranium. They're going to spend about $400 billion in building more uranium, uh, sorry, more nuclear power plants. Germany now has to take a hard look at retrofitting the, the um, plants that it was looking to close down. And again, we're not eliminating the need for commodities, but what we're moving towards is that commodity that is completely sold off for the last 20 years, which is uranium, and probably a massive growth in need for that, not just because of the low carbon uh, emissions that uranium allows for. There's obviously other environmental and safety concerns, but also because of that energy independence. If you can create that kind of baseload energy, it makes you less susceptible to what we're currently seeing in Europe. So all of these are extremely bullish for those two. 
Uh, and then the, the final one for me, and the one that I'll continue to push is semiconductors, uh, simply because I view semiconductors as the new oil, not in terms of its ability to power vehicles, although we have semiconductors are obviously the heart of, of most vehicles now in terms of being a crucial component, but because if we move to a more digital infrastructure globally, then we're moving towards something where data is the new oil and the main component that makes data powerful is a semiconductor. And so the companies that are building semiconductors, it's a very small subset of companies, the highly concentrated number of companies that really dominate most of that marketplace. And they've become a security concern because if the United States cannot get enough semiconductors, they cannot move forward to what we call industry 4.0 or emerging technology. They can't build that next technology infrastructure which is crucial to dominating the next 50 years of the global economy. So we've already seen in the United States, for example, that they've put into uh, bills, build, you know, build America, build semiconductors in America bills. They're actually highlighting semiconductors as a security concern, the way that they would have highlighted strategic oil reserves back in the 1990s. And so there's a need to not only reshore semiconductors, but spend an absolute fortune to make sure they have controlled sources of of access to semiconductors because if you don't have semiconductors available readily to you you're not building new auto manufacturing plants you're not building smart tvs it gets even more concerning you're not because you're not using ai right which is fundamental to kind of our growth trajectory on technology so i very much view that as even though it's a technology play and you have a lot of forward earnings revision that i'm talking about with higher interest rates it's also inflationary because it's a commodity and it's going to drive automation, which is ultimately what I think will get us out of, of an inflationary environment is our move towards more technology and, and less, you know, face-to-face as we obviously become comfortable with it. So you look at, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too scary here, but if you look at a situation like, you know, when, you know, Iraq takes over Q8's oil reserves in 1991, you know, and what that meant for, you know, global oil supply chain issues. What happens if Taiwan, you know, falls into complete Chinese purview in terms of being the most important strategic source of semiconductor foundry parts? So that's why you've seen massive incentives like TSMC's, I think, spending $21 billion to build um, foundry component plant in Arizona and things like that, because this is like terrifying policymakers from the security side of things. Because as deglobalization occurs, we're back to a sort of cold war uh, economic scenario where you're having competing spheres of influence, right? This is returning. The U- U.S. macroeconomic power has declined, right? As, which is inevitable. I mean, it's extremely powerful nation, but its population base is relatively small to the rest of the world. I mean, it's large, but it's not large enough. And so as that's declined, it's opened up, uh, you know, the ability for China to become a major competitor, the second largest economy in the world, likely the largest economy in the world by the end of our lifetime, just by sheer numbers production capacity. So they're going to compete with each other and they're going to compete with each other over the main drivers of economic growth, which are primarily on the technology side. That really comes the hardest semiconductor. So when I talk to investors about an interesting opportunity, like our ETF chips is seeing a lot of interest from investors, semiconductor ETF, because these companies have basically like a, like a, a government put on them. Because policymakers, whether it's Europe with ASML or it's, um, you know, United States paying these companies to build plants in Arizona or China trying to build its own infrastructure because China only makes 20% of its own semiconductors. So they're terrified as well. 
they're going to give these companies blank checks basically to support their R&D efforts. So it, the, this security component makes these extremely valuable because it makes them less susceptible when we've been talking to, which is market factors around revenues, because they're now not in the realm of a nice to have from a technology perspective or a speculative commercial good. Their view really is an assessment. It's funny, you know, um, today, today when we, uh, we sent out our daily newsletter, uh, the, uh, it was the anniversary of the implementation or the launching of the Marshall Plan after World War II. And um, it was interesting okay. to see that okay. sort of happen in and around the same time frame well, as, very, very appropriate. Uh, Biden, as the Biden administration's infrastructure bill. And, and uh, when you look through, I think recently yeah. we did a webinar with Jay Jacobs right. from Global X, uh, Global X ETFs. And in that uh, presentation, uh, Jay actually talked about some of the interesting key areas uh, or new areas um, that were where, where billions of dollars right. are earmarked over the next decade. Um, can you talk about that? It's 49%. The bridges are unsafe in the United States. Oh, we're so far behind the rest of the world. Then that's one of the issues as well. Like there's like nine trillion, I believe, that's spent globally on infrastructure, but the vast, vast majority of that is coming out of the developing world and particularly East Asia. So in terms of like and I don't need to, you know, point to just like quantitative data. If any of your listeners have been to East Asia and seen the level of digital integration that occurs there, I mean some of it's somewhat scary from a surveillance perspective, but generally speaking, it's incredibly impressive relative to what we have here and in particular Canada. So there's a long way to go for us to actually compete on the kind of level playing field that's already been established because that was viewed as a bigger strategic priority in the previous decade by developing nations that, and it's just gone completely uh, ignored here in North America to the point, you know, as we highlighted here, you're looking at almost half the bridges in America ready to fall down in the next decade. It's, it's reached a critical where you have critical infrastructure needed, but you're also so, so far behind in digital infrastructure relative to nations. And Mark, what are some of the ETFs in your lineup that investors can use to participate in all of the above um, areas that we've talked about? Well, there's the HURA, which is HURA, which is the uranium, the HLIT, which is lithium. Uh, to your point, what we're originally trying to do is, is one, with thematics, you're trying to provide diversification. So you can get the theme right and pick the wrong stock. And that's really actually easy to do. It's like, it's, it, to your point about stock picker's fallacy, it's, it's, it's almost ruinous, right? Like, I mean, if, if I was to put, uh, you know, Apple's um, forecast from 2000, Pilot's forecast 2000, and tell you, you know, let's, let's invest in mobile smart phone technology, you're back in the truck up, truck up on just so we know that's the market changes. And so the, 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 they, you know, they looked really good, man. They, 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 they were a good size and they looked good on the belt buckle, but, uh, I don't see a whole lot of them around anymore. So, you know, the, that kind of exists with how we build thematic ETFs. It's, I, I don't I have an opinion on the fee clearly here. I have a fair amount of passion around some of these themes, but I don't have an opinion on the stocks because the market dynamics can change so dramatically. Um, so we, we, so number one is diversification. We want to own as much of the theme as we can really to provide that diversification. That's the first thing that we're looking at, that, that the stocks 
And most of the work goes into, do these stocks give you exposure to the thing? And one thing we do different than a lot of other providers though, is that we look for the upstream opportunity as much as possible, which means that we want to hold the stocks that are going to benefit from the commodity supply and demand. And I think that too often with growth investing, we get so caught up in the stories on the consumer product and the usage of the technology, and we completely avoid what goes into technology, which is primarily components and commodities. And so that that's builds a little bit more of a protective boat around those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, when we have lithium miner companies, we're just having lithium miner companies. A lot of lithium ETFs hold like Tesla and battery producers. Yeah, there's an opportunity there. We're totally different areas of the supply chain. And I'd rather be the person selling the lithium than the person having to buy the lithium to build battery components. That's also hyper-competitive because there's 30 other companies that are also trying to beat me there and they're all going in the same well. So that is the other thing that we try to do with, with a lot of that. And even when we look at something like infrastructure twos, to your point, we launched the ETF called BLDR Builder. We're looking at the companies that are actually doing the building. A lot of times the infrastructure theme gets compiled by companies that are users of infrastructure. So you end up like with a lot of telcos, a lot of real estate. I'm like, well, no, like their cost inputs go through the roof on infrastructure. So our infrastructure ETF is focused on like railroads that are expanding and, uh, and companies that are, you know, Caterpillar and the big John Deere and the companies that are building a lot of the, you know, picks and shovels that are building those themes. That's just going back to economics 101. Right. The closer you are to the development of upstream commodities, the better you're going to be to a larger macroeconomic. And even marijuana is a perfect example too, right? Where, you know, you're the closer you are to actually developing the commodity, generally you do well. Then there's some exceptions with seed to sale. But generally that's kind of the conceptualization of how we build it. And that's where we spend a lot of our time. It's it's hundreds of hours. I have some people that work with me that are doing a really good job that of looking at all these different sectors and then working with our partners in Global X who are part of the global team uh, and our leaders in that space that run $40 billion ETFs, which are primarily like looking at these themes and saying, okay, we believe in the theme. A lot can happen between point A and point B where the you know, volatility in the theme, companies coming and going. How are we going to stay targeted on that theme if we believe that in X amount of time, that theme will be embraced by the global investment so that kind of goes to how to build those ETFs. The, that that ecosystem that gets created, it ends up being in some ways far more valuable. I mean, the trade-off though is, of course, if you're a company like Tesla or a company like Apple, uh, where you are able to capture the consumer's imagination, your forward earning equity is credible, right? But you also have to realize that those are outlier stocks. Um, so you have to get that one call, right? Whereas there's a lot more protection and diversification. So Mark, um, you know, I want to thank you for your time and your friendship. You've always been uh, one of our go-to people uh, when we were looking for insight into what's happening in the market. Great to see you again. Thank you so much for your time and uh, always a pleasure to have you. I appreciate it. It's always fun here. <laughs>